Let me pray real quick before we open the word, and then um, we're going to go into Ruth, the book of Ruth. Heavenly Father, uh, what we need more than anything else right now is for your grace to come and meet us here. That as we look at words on a paper that you inspired thousands of years ago, that you with your Holy Spirit would come and make those words alive to us. That the reality of, of what you did through the life of Ruth and through the, in the life of, of Naomi and these people who 3,000 years ago lived and walked on this planet, that you would breathe life into our hearts, that there would be truth that would come and invade our souls in a way that brings us joy and encouragement and helps us see you in a way that, that maybe we hadn't seen before, Father. I pray that you'd help me communicate truthfully and uh, communicate no error here today, Father. Take that from my mouth and that you'd give me and my friends receiving hearts to receive what you have. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So, like I said, if you have your Bibles, please open them and turn not to Colossians, which we spent about a year and a half uh, in, into go to Ruth, which is towards the beginning of the Bible um, in comparison to Colossians. So we're beginning a series in the book of Ruth, and uh, as we were closing really uh, in on the, the, the last few verses and chapters of the book of Colossians, I um, spent a, deal, a great deal of time praying and thinking about where God would take us next as a body of believers, and during that time I was repeatedly drawn to the book of Ruth. Um, it's four very small chapters, but they tell a remarkable story. And in that story, some very glorious, wonderful truths about God, about, about what he's doing in the world, about Jesus are there. And, and so these truths will have significant implications, God willing, on our lives. What I want to do is I want to look at this book and recognize right off the bat that this book is a love story. It is a love story story. And it provides this really radiant note of hope in what was otherwise a very bleak and tragic time in the history of the nation of Israel. It is a story about redemption in the middle of hopelessness. And we're going to begin to see that very quickly in our text today. So let's look at Ruth 1 verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So right at the beginning of our journey in this book, it says the story of Ruth is set in the days when the judges ruled Israel. The people of Israel had finally, they had been set free from their bondage to Egypt they had crossed the wilderness and they had finally reached the promised land by the hand of God. And they are in the process of dispossessing the existing wicked nations that have taken over this place since Abraham left. And they are attempting to live there and dwell there, the land that God had promised them. But it isn't a bright and joyful time for the people of Israel. Um, it is actually a very dark and very tragic time, and Judges 2.11 will tell us why. Judges 2.11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and served the Baals, the gods of that nation. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So although God has brought them out of bondage to the Egyptian uh, hierarchy, the, the slavery that they were under in Egypt, though he has delivered them into the promised land that he promised their father Abraham, it says, and, and though he had along the way, think about this, done many things to preserve them, to protect them, to love them, to care for them, they, in the end, as soon as they get there, abandon him. And they leave him to pursue other gods, to pursue the gods of the Canaanites, Baal, Asheroth. And further on in this chapter, if we were to read more, it says that God, in response to their actions, in response to their rebellion, has given them over into the hands of those nations that they didn't dispossess. And those nations whose gods they are now serving to plunder them and take them captive. God gives, gives his people over into their hands. Um, and his people, of course, in the middle of their affliction, cry out. And they plead with God for mercy and for justice because they're being afflicted. And God hears them. And verse 16 of Judges 2 tells us what he does in response. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So God, during this time, raises up these judges, these warrior leaders who can judge and lead Israel, and they deliver his people repeatedly out of the hands of their enemies. But we see that the judges don't really have a lasting effect. The judges come, they deliver the people, and the people don't listen to the judges. And then when the judges die, we find out later in the chapter, rebellion once again breaks out. So there's this horrific cycle of God delivering his people from certain destruction, and then them rebelling again from him and pursuing, betraying him really, and pursuing other gods, abandoning him for other gods. And it happens over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And the author of Judges at the very end of the book sums up this cycle in one verse by saying, in those days, this is Judges 21-25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how he sums up the book of Judges. In those days, the author says, there wasn't any king in Israel. And this is true on two levels. The first level is obvious. They don't have a human king. This time right here predates Saul David, Solomon, all the kings who would come later on, it predates that time. So there's no human king there. But the second aspect in which this verse is very true of Israel is that they had ultimately rejected God as their king. Israel, unlike all the other nations in the world, were never meant to have a human king. 
They were never meant to have a human king. God was always to be their king. They were to have a divine king. And if you read into 1 Samuel, which comes immediately after Ruth, (laughs) you see this played out. They literally say, we don't want God anymore. We want a human king like all the other nations. And so when the author of Judges says that there was no king in Israel, it isn't just a statement of a fact that there was no human king. It is an echo of their rejection as God or of God as king, and their embracing of all these other gods. Everyone did, the author says, what was right in their own eyes because they had rejected God as their king. They had abandoned him, and they had abandoned his law. And so this is the backdrop. This is the canvas on which God is going to paint the story of Ruth. This bleakness, this trauma, And so let's go back to verse 1 of Ruth and read that. Now that we know the context, read uh, verse 1 through 2. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So in the land of of Israel and really the territory of Judah and in the city of Bethlehem, but we can assume that it was going on probably all across (coughs) the nation of Israel, um, there are, there's a famine. There are no crops. There is no harvest. There is no food there. And it says that this man, Elimelech, and his wife, and his two sons, leave Judah, and they go to sojourn in the country of Moab. The wife's name is Naomi, and her two sons are Malon and Kilion. Now, we don't know if God told them to leave, and he's being obedient to God, or if he is leaving in disobedience The author never tells us either way conclusively. We only know that there's a famine in the land, and we know that it's such a significant famine that it causes them to completely uproot, leave their home in Bethlehem, and go into the country of Moab. This isn't a weekend retreat. This isn't a short stay. It says at the end of this, verse 2, they remained there. Now, the irony of Elimelech and his family leaving the nation of Israel is Elimelech's name. Now, you remember Judges 21 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. That's how the the author of Judges, who a lot of people assume is the same one as the author of Ruth, how he summarizes that time in Israel. But Elimelech's name is, my God is king. That's what Elimelech means. My God is king. So whether Elimelech is disobeying God or not by leaving Judah, leaving Bethlehem, we don't know. Um, What we do know is that the first name that is mentioned in this story, the first name that we see here, and really the catalyst by which this story begins is a Hebrew name that means 
my God is king. And it's ironic that that name is leaving Israel. The very reality that the people of Israel are living in by rejecting their king, embodied in that name, is leaving. And we'll see that this isn't just a random coincidence. This isn't just a series of random events. This actually points to the whole purpose of the book of Ruth, which we'll see a little bit today, and we'll see, uh, Lord willing, in, in increasing ways as we continue through this series. So, though they leave Bethlehem and Judah, things aren't as bad as they could be for Elimelech and Naomi. Um, the famine in Judah isn't rock bottom for this for this family. It's not, it's not the bottom of the barrel. What, uh, what was a, a life-altering situation by them having to uproot and move to another country becomes an even greater tragedy in just verse 3. So, so look at this. It says, verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and or it says, they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. Those are her two sons. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So at the very beginning of this story, Elimelech dies, and for a time, Naomi has her two, so, two sons. They eventually take wives from Moab, um, Ruth and Orpah, and then unceremoniously, a decade later, both Malon and Kilion join their father such that Naomi has no husband and no sons. We need to think about this pause and just really give this a lot of thought. In a space of three verses, everything changes for Naomi. The life she had before is gone. It's gone. Elimelech is gone. Malon is gone. Killian is gone. And so to honor the author and the value of what Scripture is trying to communicate, we need to stop here for a moment and feel some of that weight. For those of you who have families or people who are very close to you, it isn't that hard to imagine or conceive of this situation. What if you were to lose your spouse today? What if you were to lose all of your children today? How would you in Naomi's shoes, grapple with that heaviness? How would you navigate that magnitude of loss? Everything is gone. You had a family when you arrived in Moab, but they're gone. And the author wants us to feel the weight of that reality right now. Now, I said that Naomi was alone. She's gone. All these other people are, are dead. They're gone. I said that she was alone and that she is absolutely alone. However, 
there, are, there is another way in which she's not. Before her sons died, they married two Moabite women, and these women remain, Naomi's daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. They stayed with her even after their husbands die. They didn't leave in the wake of the death of Malon and Kilian. They stayed with Naomi. And this is where the chapter now begins to take shape. This is where the story now starts to take, uh, take a little bit of speed. So we're going to start in verse 6, and I'm going to read through verse 14, and then I want to unpack this in sections. So I'm going to read through this entire section here, verse 6 through 14. It says, Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no. No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. There's a lot to cover in this section, so we're going to go one, sec- one, one piece at a time. At the beginning of this passage, it says that Naomi now intends to go back to Judah from Moab. And the reason given here is that she heard while in the fields of Moab that the Lord, the Hebrew God, had visited his people and given them food. And this is the first time, apart from Elimelech's name, where we see God actually mentioned in the book of Ruth. It says, the Lord... You notice the word LORD is in all caps. And the reason it's in all caps is that it's actually not, in the original Hebrew, the word LORD. The word there, L-O-R-D, in the original Hebrew is the personal name of God. So whenever you're in your Old Testament and you see all caps God or all caps LORD, that is the personal name for God. And his personal name is Yahweh. Yahweh. So that's what Lord means. So the author is saying that Naomi heard that Yahweh, her own God, had visited his people and provided them with food. The famine is over. 
There will be a harvest this year in Judah, and this is explicitly because God, Yahweh, has visited his people. And so she now is endeavoring to go back to Judah and see if there's some way God will bless her in, that, in her country, in her home. And initially, she sets out with her two daughters-in-laws. She sets out with both of them. But at some point, she realizes that bringing them there is actually the worst thing she could do for them. It is condemning them, really, to a life of poverty and peril, potentially. Orpah and Ruth, like Naomi, do not have husbands. They have no husbands. They have no, there's no sons here, which means that they are, at this point in human history, in this culture, without protection and without provision. Now, this isn't, the, the culture that they live in, the context that they live in, isn't like Western, cult, Western society, modern day society that we enjoy right now, where a woman could, on her own, um, through social means, through legal means, pursue rights. They didn't have that opportunity back then. They didn't have that blessing. This was a time and place in history where a woman was completely vulnerable without a family unit. She needed to have a family unit. And it meant that these women might become slaves or worse. And for Orpah and Ruth, that's the situation for Naomi at this point. For Orpah and for Ruth, uh, the situation is even more tragic because of who they are. They are Moabite women. Moabite women. They're not Hebrew women. And what that means is that while God made provisions in his law against the marginalization of widows and the marginalization of, of, of orphans or the defenseless or the vulnerable, although he did that, it still happened. And they are aliens and foreigners in the land of Israel. So there is very little possibility for Ruth and for Orpah to have rest. And Naomi sees that and she does the right thing. She tells them, you need to return to your families and you need to seek your own family, your own husband there. Listen to verse eight again. Naomi says, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So Naomi's saying the only hope for you two, Orpah and Ruth, is for the Lord to grant you rest by providing you with new husbands. That's the only hope that you have in this life. And she prays, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead in me. In other words, you stuck around, you showed me immense kindness, you didn't need to. After my husband died and after my uh, sons died, you stayed with me. Now I'm asking that God would show you the same kindness, that God would stay with you. And she pleads with them to leave, go back to Moab, and return to their homes. But in response, they both tell her, no, we're not going to do that. They love her. They want to be with her. We will go with you to your own people. We know the risk. We know the potential hopelessness that's there, but we're not going to abandon you, Naomi. That's their response, which is why Naomi proceeds to tell them, you need to understand, Ruth, you need to understand, Orpah, I can't make you new sons. 
You will be without a husband if you stay with me. You are condemning yourself to widowhood the rest of your life. And in verse 13, in what seems to be in Naomi, a sudden surge of like sorrow, deep, soul-wrenching sorrow, she says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of Yahweh has, she says, gone out against her and now it is colliding with the lives of Orpah and Ruth. And to Naomi, this is an exceedingly bitter moment. She doesn't want to leave these girls, but she recognizes that they would be condemned to a life of peril if they stay with her. (laughs) And in that moment, Orpah and Ruth feel the heaviness of this event and they begin to weep and it says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye but Ruth clung to Naomi. So Orpah finally relents and says, I'll go back to Moab, I'll listen to you and Ruth refuses to do that. Ruth says no and she clings to Naomi. Now next Sunday we're going to spend our entire time asking what that means for Ruth to cling to Naomi. It's the fulcrum of this book, so it's huge. But for the rest of today, I want to stay with Naomi in this moment just a bit. In this traumatic event, the Bible doesn't pull punches. It does not. This is a traumatic event. And there's a reason that we have this kind of beginning at this, in this story. Naomi has lost everything. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. And at this point, the only thing that she really has is the expectation of shame when she walks into Bethlehem. I don't have my family anymore. And we see in verse 19 that that expectation is very real. Verse 19 says of Ruth 1, So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she says to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So imagine again, you're Naomi. You're walking into Bethlehem. You've lost your husband, you've lost your two sons. They were your life, and they're gone. And as you enter the city gates and walk back to your home, wherever it is, you begin to hear whispering all around you. And you begin to feel shame and humiliation. You know what they're saying. They're saying, is that Naomi? That can't be Naomi. Naomi had a husband. She had two sons. That can't be Naomi. Is it, is it Naomi? To which her response is really simple. It's not Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, which in the Hebrew language means pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. 
Instead, call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. And a reason for this name change is in the text. It says, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She went away with a full family and Yahweh has brought her back empty. So why call her pleasant? Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and brought calamity upon me? And in this way, she attempts to rid herself of her name because of what she says God has done to her in this series of events. And at this point in the story, for the reader, which is all of us, we need to ask a difficult question. We need to ask a significant and extremely challenging question. Is Naomi right? Is God responsible for the death of her husband and her sons? Or is this simply a cosmic roll of the die and she just got a raw deal? She just got a raw situation. So is Naomi's theology of God and his governance of the universe wrong or is it right? And this is for us an unavoidable uh, question. It's unavoidable on two levels. The first is, is this, the event in the book of Ruth and the story of the book of Ruth, the answer to our question that we're about to ask forms the backbone of that story. If we don't answer this question, we cannot understand the book of Ruth. It is impossible to understand the book of Ruth without answering this question. The second, which is more significant than that, is that this question is relevant to every single human being on the planet because everyone here will eventually lose someone they love. It is a universal reality. Not a single person in this room will walk away from this unscathed. We need to know the answer to this question. And I want you to know I feel the weight of that. I felt it all week preparing for this message because I love you and I want to help you. I really do. And um, I want to help you so that when you do actually taste Naomi's situation, when you experience what Naomi's experiencing, you will know what to think and what to do. And so this is vitally important for all of us. So is Naomi right? Is God the one who has brought her back empty? Before we answer that question with the Bible, which is the only place we can go to for a question like this, we need to say a few things, make a few things very clear. First, we need to notice that Naomi never forsakes God in this story. She never abandons God in this story. She feels the wave of loss wash over her. And while believing that it is ultimately coming from the hand of God, the hand of Yahweh, she doesn't abandon him. She doesn't curse him. She doesn't walk away from him. In fact, she still trusts him. When she heard that Yahweh was visiting her people, 
she goes back. She wants to go back home. She wants to be there. She still trusts God as her only hope despite this enormous loss that she's just experienced. She doesn't abandon God in this. In fact, in verse 8 of chapter 1, she's actually praying to him to bless Orpah and to bless Ruth. So Naomi, while she believes that the pain and the suffering in this experience is coming from the hand of God, this doesn't make God evil in her eyes. This doesn't make him wrong in her eyes. Which leads us to the second thing we need to say, which is we need to recognize the biblical reality that God is never guilty of evil. No matter what our answer to this question is, he never is guilty of evil. The Bible is very clear about God's holiness and about God's righteousness. So whatever our answer is, it must be in some way completely compatible with a pure and upright God who has done no one any wrong. Psalm 145, 17 says, Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways, and he is kind in all his works. James 1.13 says, God can never be tempted to sin. He never sins, and he never tempts people to sin. He is holy. And Naomi knows this, which is why she still loves and she still trusts Yahweh, though she says, the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. And he has dealt very bitterly with me. She can say that and still see him as worthy of worship and right and good. So what does, what does this book say about Naomi's theology? Not what does Jeremy say, not what, does, what are the presiding opinions of, this, of you know, culture or theologians. What does the Bible say about this kind of God? Is God ultimately responsible for this catastrophic? That's what it is. It is a catastrophic event in Naomi's life. Or is this some sort of cosmic, you know, casting of lots or throw of the die um, where Naomi's just got the short end of the stick? And I'm going to be very careful here because I know that we're dealing with a very difficult, difficult subject. It is a painful subject. And I love you. I do not want to hurt you. But I also know that the only way to get to the hope of this passage is that we need to walk through this truth. And so I want to do that with you. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So think about this. The casting of the lot or the throwing of the die, which is for us the most random action you can conceive of, right? It's why we have our board games. We use dice in our board games because they give us a random uh, decision. This verse is saying that that is determined ultimately by God. God chooses the lot. God determines the numbers on the die when they come to rest. God does that. And that's what it means for it to say every decision is from the Lord. It's not a hypothetical. He's describing a reality. So even something as minuscule as the roll of a die is governed by Yahweh. But that 
that game of chance isn't what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about people's lives. We're talking about tears. We're talking about pain. We're talking about trials and suffering. And so let's go to Exodus 4. Exodus 4, um, if you remember, Moses is talking to God, and he's telling God all the reasons why he's not a great leader. He's telling God all the reasons why he should find somebody else to do this. I'm not a great leader, and I can't bring your people out of Egyptian slavery. I'm not the right one. And, and one of his reasons is, I have a speech impediment. You would not select a leader who has a speech impediment. I can't talk. I'm slow of speech. In that moment, how does God respond? Does God say, you know, you're right. Let me fix that. That was not part of the plan. No. He says what Exodus 4.11 says, which is, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, Moses' speech impediment is by design. And God is not going to fix it. God is the one, according to this passage, who makes a man mute or deaf or speaking or seeing or blind. He takes the responsibility on himself and says, I am the one. It's part of my purpose. It's part of my plan. Even if it feels excruciating in the middle of it, it's part of this. It's part of what it comes from my hand. And in fact, the best example of this in Scripture is really Job, a man who is hammered by tragedy after tragedy. And he's righteous. He's this righteous man who, in one moment, he loses all ten of his children. He has 10 children. They're gone. He loses them. And as he surveys what can only be described as a catastrophic loss, it says in Job 1, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He lost 10 kids. All of them. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the inspired author writes, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then his health is taken from him. And his wife says, why are you holding on to your integrity? Curse God. And you know what he says to her? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, why do we expect to receive only good from God such that when calamity or tragedy strikes, we demand to know where he is? He owes us it. We demand it. Why didn't God stop that from happening? Almost saying, like, we know better than you. You owe us this, God. 
And there is a very real danger in that presumption. James 4 says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you know not what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And he summarizes his statement here, James, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. James is saying to presume that God should keep us alive, to presume that God should bless us, can be arrogant and is arrogant. Rather, he says, we need to recognize that everything in this world that we have that's a blessing, including our lives, hangs on four words. If the Lord wills. Psalm 135, 6, well, let me say this. If God desires it, it will most certainly happen. If he does not, it will not. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas and all the deeps. In other words, if it pleased God to keep Elimelech alive, to keep Malon and Kilion alive, they would be alive. But if God sees something greater beyond keeping them alive, he won't. And that is where we have to go to find the relationship between the sovereignty of God in Naomi's life and in our life and the goodness of God, our good that he's seeking. Naomi, in much of what she's saying, is correct. There's a way in which she's wrong. And I'll get to that in a second. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. That's Ephesians 1.11. Nothing is an accident ever. Ever. Which tells us something incredibly profound. It means that everything, everything, every single thing, even the darkest moments in our lives, has meaning. There is a meaning to it. There is a reason for it. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. There is a purpose underneath the pain. And so although this is exceedingly bitter for Naomi, and although it feels as though God has testified against her and that there is no hope for her at all, this is where she's wrong. She's wrong. There is hope for her. There is one thing in this sea of grief that Naomi is drowning in that she's forgotten, and that is the truth and the faithfulness of Romans 8.28. If you have one verse that you lay hold of in the middle of the darkest circumstances, it has to be Romans 8.28. Let me read it to you. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Naomi still loves God. She trusts him. That's why she's come back to Judah. But what she doesn't see clearly right now is that God has not brought her back empty. He hasn't brought her back empty. That's where she's wrong. He's given her Ruth, the Moabite. And it is going to be through this young woman, this Moabite woman, that God is going to change human history such that without Naomi's tragedy, without the loss that she experiences in chapter one, it would have never happened. In other words, the good that God is going to do to Naomi and for Naomi, the good that he's going to do for Ruth, and the good that God's going to do for every single one of his people, including us in this room, cannot happen without the painful providence that is striking Naomi's life in chapter one of this book. Remember, Naomi wanted her name to be changed to Mara. She, wanted, she didn't want to be called Naomi anymore. She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. But I want you to notice, God refuses to call her Mara. He never calls her Mara. She's never called Mara in this book. She is called Naomi in this book. She continues to be called pleasant. She continues to be called Naomi as though God is saying, I know it hurts. I know it hurts. I feel the pain that you're experiencing right now, Naomi but I refuse to call you by that name. I refuse to call you by that name. And I promise to you, I will work out of this catastrophe good for you. There will be good for you such that you will see me in a way that was impossible for you to see when your husband and your sons were alive. The last verse of this first chapter leaves us with a very brief glimpse of that hope. Let me read it. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. At the beginning of barley harvest. The famine is over. The harvest has begun. The dark cloud of this tragedy is about to part and make way for a light of hope. And this hope will be invincible. And the reason it's invincible is because of what we've learned about God. That God is in control. If God wasn't in control of the suffering and the tragedy, then there would be no reason to hope. There'd be no reason to hope. There would be no sense to the suffering or meaning in the suffering. But as we've seen, God isn't absent in the suffering. In fact, that is where he is most present. In those dark moments is where he is most with us, most tangibly with us. And they are providing, the reason why he's with us is because those dark moments provide us a pathway to a greater hope. And what I want to do now is I want to jump to the very end of this book and just read two verses It's a peek at where we're going, but it's important for us to make sure we have an anchor set in the hope of this book. Verse 16 and 14 of chapter 4 says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. They didn't give her a name. They gave him a name. She's not Mara. She's Naomi. 
They gave the child a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So it says here, a son has been born to Naomi. The impossible has happened. And we're going to find out exactly how that happens in the coming weeks. But the critical part of this passage, for us today at least, is that Naomi's line is preserved. Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. Namely, King David, who much of the Bible is either written by or of. So you remember Judges 21, last verse in the book? In those days there was no king in Israel. That was the end of the book of Judges. That's about to change. And Naomi is the reason that it's going to change. Her suffering is the pathway to that change. It is through her great, great loss that God is going to provide a king for Israel. And not only that, do you remember what we read at the beginning of chapter 1? Elimelech's name was, my, uh, my God is king. That's his name, Elimelech, the guy who dies, that kicks off this entire tragedy in Naomi's life. So while David will rule for a time and then his son, or while he'll rule for a time and others will follow him, a thousand years later, there is a man who will be the ultimate fulfillment of Elimelech's name. My God will be king. And that's Jesus Christ, King Jesus. David's son. And what that means is that in Elimelech's death, it is not only Naomi's story that takes flight and David is eventually born, but it is the coming of Jesus who isn't an ordinary name. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the divine king for which the throne of Israel was always made. And Jesus is the the, the reason really that Elimelech could even have that name. He's the fulfillment, the consummation of that hope all the hopes of Israel, and really the hope of anyone who's put their faith in God. And what that means is this, without this story, without Naomi's tragedy, the royal lineage that leads to God being king in the form of Jesus is incomplete. And so in this story of hope and redemption against a backdrop of painful, excruciating providence, We need to see first this truth, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. He does this, even in the darkest and most tragic times. In fact, that's when he's most at work. And without seeing that, it's not only impossible to understand the story of Ruth, it's impossible to grapple with the tragedy that will inevitably strike each of us one day. And so some of you have already walked through situations similar to Naomi's. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are walking through them right now. And if I could give you one word of encouragement, one word of encouragement as you consider and contemplate walking through a situation or in the midst of one right now, it is this. Hold on to your King Jesus. Hold on to him. Don't stop trusting him. Don't stop walking with him. 
recognize that he is where you put your anchor, just like Naomi did. He loves you. He is with you even in the most darkest valleys. He sees you where you are, and he loves you, and he is promising you that day will one day come. And so don't let go of him. In a moment, we're going to be taking communion as part of worship and We're reminded when we do take communion every week, the purpose, the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came into the world and experienced the greatest suffering that anyone has ever experienced. Jesus was born, our king was born to die. He was born to die. He was born to lay hold of all of our sins, all of our wavering faith in the middle of tragedy, all of our all of our inability to pursue God in the way that we should and trust him in the way that we should, he took all of that, went to a cross, and paid ransom for us. That's what communion's all about. But three days later, unlike Elimelech, unlike, unlike Malon and Kilion, this man does not stay dead. He rises from the dead to be king forever. This is the same Jesus, the story of Naomi and Ruth, not only, not only point to, but make a way for. And so if your faith is in this King, Christ Jesus, then please receive those elements when we take them and worship him gladly, saying with your hearts, my God is King. He is King. He will take you through the deepest and darkest circumstances. You can trust him. You can rely on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we need really from you right now is for our hearts to, to see this. It's one thing to read this as words on a page. It's another thing for the reality of it to penetrate our hearts and take control of our souls, govern our hearts so that we feel a joy in a God who brings meaning to every single circumstance in our lives, who is in the details and feeling the pain that we feel when we lose someone we love, when things go tragically sideways, when we get a call from a doctor that is not what we want, When something happens to our kids, our family, Father, you are with us in those circumstances. We need to feel it. It's not enough for us to see words describe it. We need to know it. Please help us know it as a people. Help us know it individually. Help us feel your embrace even in the valleys, Father. And help us see that the dark moments in our lives are simply a pathway deeper into an understanding of your presence and your joy and into a hope that will never, ever have a darkness in the end. It will be without suffering anymore. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that, that we can ask anything of you from. Please grant us this. Amen.